Welcome to the Garden Culture Podcast, hosted by me, Bailey Van Tassel. I'm a self-taught gardener, busy wife and mother, and small business owner on a mission to live a garden-inspired life. Each month, we will explore what's going on in the garden and fields, as well as get to know incredible people who infuse their own lives with the magic of the garden. For more information on any techniques, recipes, or ideas mentioned here, please visit us at baileyvantassel.com slash podcast. Today, I get to have the pleasure of interviewing Andrew Bunting, who's the VP of Horticulture at the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. And it's so cool because they have released their view on the top 10 gardening trends for 2024. And I have noticed this and talked about it frequently, how there are trends in with gardening and plants similar to like fashion or home decor trends. And so Andrew and I dig into the trends that are coming up. There are 10 of them that are really, really interesting. We deep dive on five because as you guys know, it's just so rich with fun information. But what I love is Andrew is so, so, so well-versed on different types of plants and just the way they play into our modern lives and the way people are using them. And specifically the tiny, tiny changes that we can make to have better gardens and be sort of better stewards of our spaces. It's such an interesting and awesome conversation. You guys are going to love this. Andrew, hello. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure to get to chat. I'm so excited to hear not only about what you guys have going on at the Horticultural Society, but your journey to get there. Um, Quickly, I would love to hear you introduce yourself just a touch, just to get everyone up to speed on on what you're up to. Sure. Um, I'm Andrew Bunting. I'm the vice president of horticulture at the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. I've been at the society for four years as an employee, but prior to that, I volunteered since the mid, mid-80s, uh, mostly at the flower show, but uh, in some of the city gardens, contest judging, and uh, a myriad of other kind of volunteer opportunities over the last 35 years or so. That's incredible. Are there, and and I, I didn't fact check this, but how many different horticultural societies are there in the state? Do you know? I don't know. You know, there, I, I think what happened is, you know, between 100 and 200 years ago, a lot of the major cities had horticultural societies. For example, there was New York Horticultural Society, Massachusetts Horticultural Society, Pennsylvania Horticultural Society, Chicago, and and so on. So I think a number of the big older cities have horticultural societies. And then there probably have popped up some some smaller kind of regional horticultural societies. You know, a lot a lot of the plant societies today today are mo- more focused on specific plants. Like I just mm. joined the the Begonia Society and I just joined the Hosta Society. And not that there's a, a society for every single plant type, but there mm. there are a lot of them. Yeah, that's so interesting. The way. I guess, and today we're going to be talking about trends, but the way the times sort of 
you know, have these trends when it comes to the natural world and the garden, of course. Um, and I was really, I'm really excited to dig into the trends with you today, sort of the 10 gardening trends you guys are seeing for 2024. Um, and I'm curious what informs some of these trends and I guess when something, when there's like a spinoff, so for example, you know, the Begonia Society that's happening, do you find that there are these new sort of specialty plant interests that come along or are these fairly timeless when people start developing this big passion? Yeah, I would say they they kind of ebb and, and flow. I mean, we see, you know, when we put on the Philadelphia Flower Show every year, and we've been doing that for the last... 194 years, you know, we see trends in there. We have an, a part of the, the flower show called the Horticourt, and that's where individuals bring their plants to be judged against uh, uh, other people's plants. It's kind of like the, the county fair for, for house plants. Uh, and mm. there's over 200 different classes. So, you know, a good example is cactus and succulents have been uh, trending up. There's uh, mm. there, there's been people exhibiting cactus and succulents for decades, but there's probably more interest in that group of plants than at any other time. And then another trend are uh, the the aeroids, so things like pothos and monstera. Mm and anthuriums, and a whole host of plants that are in, in that group called the, the aeroids. And that, yeah. that, that actually, that trend at the flower show, I think, aligns with a, a greater national, if not international trend, which are yeah. houseplants. And then more specifically within the houseplants, kind of some of those iconic houseplants like the Monstera. You know, if you go on and look at any Pinterest or social media around houseplants, you know, you'll see about 10 types of houseplants that seem to be really popular. Some of them were popular a hundred years ago and now have had this incredible renaissance. And some of them were never popular and they're just because there's such an interest in houseplants that they're popular as well. So we start to see, you know, kind of these external national and international trends, and then you see them kind of playing out at, in some cases at, at the flower show as well. So what brought you yeah. into horticulture in general? Did you, would you always know this was your path? Are you just a diehard gardener at heart? I would love to hear a little bit more about your personal journey. Sure. So my mom has always been a, a gardener and, uh, you know, I think probably through her, I, I first got interest in ornamental gardening. My grandfather on my father's side was a farmer in Nebraska and we would do yearly summer trips there. And I, I think that influenced me as well. I was lucky enough in high school to go to a very large high school that actually had a greenhouse management course in high school. So oh that, that's probably what kind of piqued my interest. And then I went to a really great Junior, junior college, Joliet Junior College in the south suburbs of Chicago. And they my had, husband's from Joliet. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, he went to um, 
Joliet Catholic Academy. We were just oh, there for Thanksgiving. Uh, I had a, I had a classmate at, at Joliet Junior Cap, uh, uh, College that went to Joliet Catholic. Yeah, I went to, or we lived in a, uh, you'll have to ask him about this, a little town called Manhattan. So I, I tell okay. everybody I'm from Manhattan and then have to clarify from Manhattan. <laughs> White, which is a little, little sub, like a suburb of, of Joliet. But uh, when I was at Joliet Junior College, they had such a great horticulture program. One of the things they required since it was just a two-year degree is that uh, each of the two years you had to have an internship. So the first internship, I stumbled on the Morton Arboretum, which is west of Chicago. And then the next year, I interned at the Chicago Botanic Garden. And that kind of, again, piqued my interest that there could actually be a a career in botanic gardens in Arboreta. So then I did some other internships and then uh, I did a, a year-long internship at the Scott Arboretum at Swarthmore College, which is nearby to where I live now. And was there two different stints for a total of 27 years. And then I left and, and was assistant director of the Chicago Botanic Garden and then came back to Philadelphia area and have this job that I have today. So throughout my career, I've always been in botan botanic gardens, public gardens, but I've also, uh, you know, I'm, my hobby is gardening. So I have a, you know, a fairly significant home garden that, you know, is fairly involved. And then, you know, when I go on vacations, they often are gardening related too. So <laughs> I feel lucky to be in a, you know, in a profession where your profession can also be your, your passion. You know, I'm, I'm not sure that that's true of everybody. Like, you know, do, do, uh, I mean, maybe they do, do lawyers, uh, do law all day and then do it on the, on their weekends too. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Um, so, you know, and, and that's true of a lot of people I know where, uh, horticulture is might be their profession, but is also their their pastime. I don't think, and I suppose I haven't. I don't have the again the facts to back it up, which I should be getting more facts. But um, <laughs> I I just don't think that you can love gardening and nature and not have it start to seep into other areas of your life and have it sort of alter the way you see the world. And so, similar to you, I always joke. Every, you know, everywhere we go, my poor husband, every vacation becomes just me talking about a different type of plants. And I'm always, I'm that annoying person who's like, oh, look, you know, that's, that's a, a palm and it's unique. Like I see the world through nature now and it has not always been that way, but the passion is so pervasive and it really exceeds in every part of your life. So I feel like if you've chosen a profession, especially in horticulture, uh, it just takes over. I, I, yeah. I have not encountered a single person I know yet that loves plants that doesn't just each year have it become a bigger and bigger like love affair with the natural world, really. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Like, you know, if I look at my life today, I mean, I am interested in other things, but, you know, almost all the kind of extracurricular committees and boards and things that I'm on are all horticulture related. And a lot of the reading I do is horticulture related. Definitely a lo lot of the travel, not 
and and, yeah. and sometimes it's more kind of you know eco based or natural based, but yeah. you know definitely has ties to the to the plant world. Tell me about your home garden. What are you primarily growing like in your free time? Yeah, so I live in a suburban Philadelphia in, in a town called Swarthmore. And uh, it's a third third of an acre. So the front yard is a, a gravel garden, which I installed about four years ago. Uh, the backyard is kind of a mix of perennials, but I also have lots of seasonal pots and tropical plantings. And then the very back is a kind of a woodland shady garden with a pond. And then about 10 years ago, I asked my neighbors if I could take over essentially a third of their yard. And I converted that into a 40 by 100 foot um, vegetable garden. Now, 10 years on, all the trees and the other neighbors have grown big enough that they're starting to shade out the vegetable garden. So the vegetable garden is a bit in transition right now. I'm thinking of um, turning it into the garden of whimsy uh because my my neighbors who own own the property uh have two little uh granddaughters so i thought i'd create kind of not a children's garden but just a garden that maybe they can find some uh uh you know kind of whimsical aspects to i love that i have added a lot of those touches to our home garden i have a functional fairy door that opens in one of my raised beds, like in one of the vegetable beds. And so I hide little treats in there for them. <laughs> and the garden fairy obviously leaves them. I have nothing to do with it. But, <laughs> um, you know, I feel like inspiring children to get out into the garden and creating some of that magic. I mean, the plants do it. Nature does it enough. But I think it's fun to have, like you said, some of that whim- whimsy where in this day and age, I, I, it's just not, it's not everywhere. It's not as easy to access. Yep. Yep. So that, that's kind of, that part of the garden's kind of TBD in transition mm. for sure, but uh, I'm sure it'll turn into something. So I love that. Um, okay. So I want to, I do want to dive in a little bit to the gardening trends that you guys have identified for 2024. Um, I think they're, they're spot on. And I'm obviously curious to get your take on it. So um, I know there's there's there are 10 specific trends and I want to make sure I have it right. I don't know. Maybe you've memorized the trends. But the first <laughs> one is considering the environment as you garden. And this is something I've been hearing a ton about, um, you know, on Instagram, you, this whole leave the leaves and like all yeah. of these ultra and I, I feel like permaculture is informing the home vegetable gardener a lot more which is yep. really exciting um but i'm i'm curious what your take is on all of these gardening trends and sort of how you guys have come up with the list yeah so the, these are all things that that uh have been happening i would say over the last five to 10 years, but there's been a lot of talk about some of them, you know, in very recent years, like you mentioned, leave the leaves. So that's, uh, I guess a movement or, and a trend where homeowners are are being encouraged to instead of rake up all the leaves in the fall to leave them in, in the garden beds. 
because it's in, in that kind of leaf litter where a lot of insects overwinter bees and moths and other plants that might overwinter as a, a beetle or larvae or, or however. Uh, so, so that's one. A, a lot of these uh, others are ones that people have been talking about, but I think you know what we're starting to see is a lot of these are you know becoming ma- mainstream. Where you know I just drove around my little town today and saw you know lots of people who have taken part of their front yard, their lawn, you know, converted their lawn into a little garden. You know, one of the movements is just if every homeowner in the United States reduced their great American lawn by just 1%, it would make a a mammoth positive impact on the environment because it would be 1% less lawn that's being mowed. You know, and if you mow a lawn, you, you know, typically you're mowing it about half of the year. So that's 26 mowings a year. Every time you mow the lawn, you use gasoline, which is obviously a, a fossil fuel. So if you could do kind of just look at little ways to reduce mowing. And then obviously, if you're reducing mowing, you're going to also be creating a new bed space, which might have pollinator plants or other kind of ecologically beneficial plants. So, you know, I think the idea with a lot of these kind of um, considering your garden as part of that, uh, the environment or the ecosystem is that everybody can do just tiny little baby steps, but if they're done collectively, regionally, nationally, globally, uh, the impacts might be uh, significant. Another Another one that's really been been promoted this year is uh, rewilding. So, kind of taking you know cultivated parts of your property and and just allowing them to be a little bit more wild. It may it may be just planting areas that are maybe not non traditional in their aesthetic. You know, I I think that um yeah the Typical approach is to plant a perennial garden and then in the fall, cut all the perennials to the ground. Uh, There's also part of this trend is to leave perennial stems up for the winter. So it it is creating a different aesthetic, which might take people a while to, to get used to. But by leaving those stems, it's in those hollow stems of lots of perennials and ornamental grasses where lots of pollinator larvae uh, overwinter. So they kind of crawl into those chambers. Now, if you don't don't like that look, um, what's suggested is you cut down the perennials and just stack them up maybe in some sort of ornamental type way or contained type way. So the stems are still in the garden, maybe, but they're not, you know, uh, brown kind of lifeless stalks that you, you or your neighbors might find uh, uh, unattractive. Um, and there's a lot. I like that. Know, what Say that again. I like that idea. I haven't heard of that. And I think yeah. where you're yeah, stacking the stems. Yeah. It's but it is. Of- kind of aligns with kind of leave the leaves, you know, it's just kind of leaving what's there for the winter. And then in the spring, you know, you can, 
you know, once the the overwinter insects have emerged, then you can cut the perennials back then. You can clean up the leaves then. Or the idea is with leave the leaves is you leave them and they start to biodegrade over the winter and actually turn into leaf mulch or compost and, and you don't remove them from the garden at, at, at all. Um, and I, you know, I've been to, you know, where I see a lot of these trends is I, I go to a lot of conferences, a lot of symposia, look at other podcasts, you know, look at a a lot of literature and, you know, I would say half of what I see at these, uh, symposia and conference really revolves around, uh, considering the environment is, is part, part of your garden. Um, so, you know, and, and that, I think that will just, uh, c- continue. Yeah, it, it is. It, I mean, it reminds me of that quote where they say, or I don't know if it's a quote, but the anecdote certainly where it's like, if you're a pilot and you adjust the path of your airplane by 1%, you're going to end up somewhere entirely different than when you were originally going. <laughs> and I think that is, the beauty of if everyone just made a 1% change in the way they take care of their personal yard. I remember reading a book about permaculture and them saying like, it's really regenerative agriculture is, is an incredible ideal, but they're actually so much onus lands on the, the homeowners. And if you as like a homeowner in suburbia actually made better choices whether it be a more ecologically taken stewarded piece of land and also growing your own fruits and vegetables, we would have an entirely different demand system. And that would change everything too. So we can't just we can't just require people outside of ourselves to be the ones making all the changes on behalf right. of everyone. Yeah. Um, I, but I, I, I just wrote an article yes, yesterday for a local newspaper on how you know, just a homeowner can really, if they if they take kind of a different approach to maintaining their property. So instead of maintaining the property, they actually become stewards of their own mm-hmm. property. And Big by stu- being stewards, it can it can mean a lot of different things. This particular article I was talking about um, uh, removing in- invasive plants on your own little plot of land. So. You know, a- any home around here has, you know, Amher honeysuckle and English ivy and Norway maples and all sorts of invasives. And if every every homeowner really saw their property as a piece of land that's part of a greater ecosystem and did what they could to be the best stewards of their little plot, then again, that would, I think, start to shift things um, in the right direction. I agree with you. I, I have a question and it, it's somewhat controversial. <laughs> um, so my husband and I are always, you know, just being married where we tend to be at odds over uh, most things. So <laughs> the opposites attract and he's my best friend. He's the best. But I like a more wild approach complemented by my vegetable garden. It's very, I feel like they're your veggie garden is very indicative of who you are, the way that it looks and the way that it's yeah. run, I feel like is very indicative of the gardener. Um, but I'm always trying to keep things a little bit more on the wild side for ecological purposes. And he is such a neat and tidy guy. And we were talking about 
those differences there. And I'm always making this ecological case, but I do think there is a case to be made for, and I'm thinking back to like the Victorian era, but like beautiful, very well-kept and tidy gardens that give people a lot of peace and presence and like having this sort of statement that's being made with plants. Um, and I, I guess I'm curious what your take is on that, because I feel like um, it's not in vogue to do things that are not ecological. Like, I feel like people will sort of like shame you on the internet if you are right. not leaving the leaves. <laughs> so it's like a touchy subject, but I think there, I think obviously, you know, um, everything in moderation, but I'm curious what your take is on that. Yeah. Well, I would, I would say I'm probably more like your husband. Like I, I like things to be well kept and orderly and, and groomed and all of that. But, you know, I don't, you know, shave my shrubs into little balls or squares or, or things like that. <laughs> I've, uh, what I've, what I've done is I have lots of gardens that are, that I would say are on the wild, more naturalistic side, but I, you know, if they're in a bed, you know, I keep the bed nicely edged. If there's lawn that goes up to the bed, there's a nice delineation between, sure. between the two. Um, you know, if I was going to do like, I do have parts of my yard where I think ultimately cutting back the perennials is just a better aesthetic, but then I might take the, like I said, take those branches and maybe in sure. some sort of crisscrossing pattern, kind of stack, stack them up in the garden and actually sure. make that into kind of, um, you know, kind of an art form, I guess. Um, so I, I, I actually think for me, one of the best looking gardens is where you have like a strong juxtaposition between the wild and the controlled. So like in my mm. garden for winter interest, I have a series of boxwoods that are clipped in into balls. And then I have some yews that are clipped into columns. So that, mm. that provides like structure and then yeah. kind of within those gardens it, in the, especially in the summer is kind of exuberant and wild and, and kind of out of control, but it has these, these, um, these more formal confines. So you, sure. you, you know, for me that kind of keeps things in check, maybe like your yeah. husband. Uh, so I think you can, you can do both. You know, I think there I are gar gardeners who like everything messy, like the lawn is messy, the, mm. you know, the beds are messy. And, and, you know, I think that appeals to, you know, a certain type of person. Uh, but mm -hmm. I think, I think you can do, do both. You know, there is the extreme where, you know, beautiful, beautifully manicured lawn, clipped shrubs, every, everything is controlled, you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, I think that used to be okay, but that, you know, that requires a lot of, um, a lot, a lot of fuel to keep your, mm. your shrubs clipped, keep your lawn green. And then it takes a lot of chemicals as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. So I want to make sure we have time to address all these <laughs> trends. Um, but I love that because I do think that's the balance that we strike is, you know, sort of finding the complement and the compromise where it is the wild mixed with the more buttoned up. And I actually think that makes, that creates so much visual interest. And I think it's fun as a gardener too, to challenge yourself to create that and find that rhythm, you know, for your space. 
Yeah, um, I think just uh, before we go to the next one, one of my favorite gardens anywhere in the world is uh, Great Dixter, which is in England. And that's an incredible example of, you know, kind of formal edges and boundaries. And then the most incredible, exuberant, overflowing, over-the-top gardens kind of within those confines. And um, they did a, they've been assessing um, kind of biodiverse hotspots around the UK. And even mm. though this is a completely man-made space, I think Fergus Garrett, the head gardener, said it's one of the seven, like top seven most biodiverse places in all of England. So, wow, um, you know, e- e- even more so than than natural areas, because I think probably because there's so many plants from all over the world, it just creates this kind of blend of biodiversity. Oh, yeah. Well, okay, and to your point on that too, and that reminded me. So I I heard about Scotland with a rewilding effort that they're taking as a country, which I think is so phenomenal. Um, but it's really interesting because there is that like rewilding component, and then there's also, you know, the gardener's hand helping create incredible things like biodiversity. Um, but I'm curious if you see, you know, on the note of trends, other countries and or maybe cities or regions taking on this rewilding effort. Um, I guess I hadn't heard of many other places doing it to that extreme like I had with Scotland. Yeah, I don't know that I've heard of like huge areas like that. I know in England, for example, there's a, an estate where, you know, they're rewilding the entire estate. So I think some of these bigger projects will probably start to lend themselves to, you know, uh, planning either like a town level, municipality, city, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe county wide. Uh, You know, that may not happen today. That may be something that really picks up steam 10 years from now. You know, if there's, there's uh, tax incentives to do things like that. I've been working with a, a local colleague. He's actually a, a math teacher at the local high school. But one of his passions is to get all these corporate campuses to go sure. from you know massive lawns to some sort of rewilding. Um, we've we did uh, we actually worked for Subaru of America campus in, in Camden. And they built a new corporate campus maybe about 10 years ago and came to us and we planted almost all a mixture of all mostly natives, but kind of a meadow-esque, prairie-esque planting around all their huge corporate buildings. And Mm. they hardly have any lawn, probably less than 1% of that corporate campus is is, um, lawn. And I was at another conference this uh, summer, and um, Toyota said that there, I forgot the year, but there was a mandate by Toyota for all their manufacturing plants and all the properties they own across the United States to reduce the lawn spaces by 85% by maybe it was like 2035. There was, you know, a, a year with this, this mandate in place. So there is... There is a, a movement, um, you know, 
that's 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 happening where you're finding like these huge corporate campuses which would have traditionally had had lawn which are just looking at alternatives and maybe the upfront costs are a little bit more but the long-term costs have to be significantly less because you're reducing mowing and, and chemical use you know in a, in a significant way for sure for sure i love that um yeah that's really interesting i think that could be there's just there's so much lawn yeah <laughs> i mean i just i just full stop there's just too much lawn everywhere but these corporate buildings i feel like too it's just sort of why don't we just throw in a lawn you know like i don't know i don't know yeah, like and there's actually even the much look, thought the look like the subaru campus the look can the juxtaposition again of this very modern building against this kind of prairie-like yeah. planting is really provocative. It's like, totally. you know, if you just put a lawn with some clipped shrubs in front of it, that would be pretty pretty boring. And what what we've found is that the, the employees love it, you know, and there's lots of science and data around, uh, you know, if people look out onto something that's, um, yeah, green spaces pretty versus like asphalt or lawn like productivity goes up sick days go down you know all sorts of mental health issues go down so you know that that's all you know uh substantiated through science absolutely i've i've looked at that too for even like schools where the children their ability to focus and retain information is higher when they're looking out windows that have green spaces and green right, belts, which is right. so incredible. Um, okay, so moving on to trend number two, and, <laughs> and we might not even dig into all of them, but <laughs> is this is growing fruit at home. And I love it because I think a lot of people place limitations on what they can do with a home with their home and the space that they're given, um, not realizing how low maintenance certain plants and or trees can be. Um, so tell me more about growing fruit at home. What do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I, th I think still growing fruit at home is probably not for a a everyone. Um, you know, to get a perfect apple, you know, is, is just not going to ha happen without probably spraying something because apples get all sorts of diseases and scab and etc but you know what what i'm starting to see or what we're starting to see is people growing alternatives to some of the traditional fruits like apples and and peaches and pears and so forth i mean people are still growing all of those for sure and there are um there are kind of new and improved varieties of all of those but I think people are, are starting to look at some of the non-traditional fruits like the native uh, pawpaw, uh, mm. cinnamon trilobo, which is native, you know, all over the eastern United States. In fact, in like in Indiana, uh, the common name is the Indiana banana. In Michigan, it's the Michigan banana. I assume in Pennsylvania, it's the Pennsylvania banana. And it's, mm. a, you know, it's a stout. It looks like a big inflated peanut. And it has kind of a, a banana-like taste and texture. So pawpaws are, are popular. Another native that's, you know, maybe gaining in, in popularity is the native persimmon. And that mm. has little round uh, kind of 
the size of maybe a little smaller than a golf ball, orange fruits. Uh, but they, in, unless they're, they've been frosted several times, they really make your mouth pucker up. Mm-hmm. So what a lot of people are growing are some of the Asian uh, alternatives. So uh, diaspirus khaki, like if you buy a persimmon in the grocery store, it's going to be diaspirus khaki, one of those cultivars. Mm-hmm. So in my backyard, I have one called Sejo, which is kind of egg shaped. Um but there's there's okay. about a dozen cultivars. Like the one you often see in the grocery store, it's it's cut kind of uh, flat and squat. It almost looks like like a little flattened pumpkin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's nice about the Asian persimmons is once they ripe, you can uh, essentially eat them right off the tree. Mm-hmm. I was just at a, an event and they had some raffle items, and I won a, a loaf of uh, persimmon bread. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have in my backyard four diaspirus khaki sejo. They're about 10 years old. They're about 25 feet tall. And in a good year, they each produce 750 persimmons. So between the four, I get about 3,000 persimmons, which is about 2,900 more persimmons than any, anybody really needs. So, I mean, you should be making persimmon bread for sure. Yeah, bread. I had I have people that come over and harvest them, so they make bread, cookies. Uh, my neighbors made ice cream. Oh uh, yeah, they're, they're good just to eat. They're um, like if you're going to a party, you'll get a lot more uh, mileage out of uh, a bag full of persimmons than you will out of a, a bottle of wine. Yes, so. I love that. <laughs> well, and there's this um, backyard orchard culture, I want to say is what it's yes. called, but you know, where I, you know, there's a way to keep your fruit trees so that they don't get big and out of control or need as much yep. space. Yep. Um, and I know we have like a weird little slope. That's just, it's just a scrap of land, but I mean, I'm in Southern California, so I grow citrus. Um, right. and we can't grow things like apples and stone fruit unless they're very, very specific varieties because we don't really get much chill hours. Um, but I think people catching on to the capabilities of keeping these incredible fruit trees, it is such a novelty still. I think back on like, I was watching Little Women, you know, for the holidays and how like treasured a, a piece of fruit was in the winter. Of course, they're in Massachusetts, but there's something so romantic about a fruit tree, in my opinion. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, I like the persimmons. Or yeah, the persimmons I have. I am going to plant some um, pawpaws. Uh, you know, I think part of the movement is, like you said, just finding maybe a little bit of land. Maybe it's between you and your neighbors. Uh, I know in Philadelphia we have what's called Pop, the Philadelphia Orchard Project, and what they do is they look mm-hmm. for maybe just like you know these little unused pieces of land where they can plant fruit trees and. Mm-hmm. and um, you know, figs have become more and more popular. I'm sure Southern California figs do quite well. You know, out yep. here, they were always thought to be not so hardy. But again, mm. with kind of warming winters, they're perf- perfectly hardy now. Uh, there's lots of interest around. Um, did, did your hardiness zone change recently? Yes. So we're, uh, we were 
6B and we're now somewhere between 7A and 7B, like almost a whole hardiness zone warmer. It's Um, so wild. So it doesn't enable us to grow things we couldn't grow before, but, you know, as we all know, it has, you know, the, the, the shortcomings outweigh that the positives for sure. <laughs> um, okay. So moving to decorating with houseplants, I know we kind of even touched on that in the beginning of the conversation. I know this plant parent houseplant movement, especially I feel like with millennials and yeah. even Gen Z coming into the fold, it's people, it's a thing. It's a big, yeah. the houseplant movement is a big thing. Um, and I know that you even mentioned some of the popular types of houseplants. I hadn't even realized. I mean, there's like a black market for houseplants. Oh, like yeah, people completely. are buying and selling. Yeah, there's a whole almost like houseplant uh, underground. There's these you know, <laughs> Facebook sites that you own, that you can only get on by them allowing like, you onto, yes. and there's lots of training of information and i was talking to a friend who's really into aeroids she's a, a uh an art dealer by trade and she said you know she'll buy some buy some house plants online and she'll meet some guy in the back alley and he'll pop his trunk and you know she'll take delivery <laughs> on, on her house plants uh you know it's it's all legal but it's, it seems uh you know, like there, there is all this activity go- going on with uh, house plants, but they're, you know, you can just go to Philadelphia, and there's probably do- dozens of stores that specifically grow kind of house plants and and home home decor that weren't yeah. there uh, ten years ago. There's this incredible incredible resurgence in all these plant societies like the Begonia Society, Aeroid Society, Jesneriad Society. We have, um, what's it called? Indoor, indoor plant society and, and on and on and on. Uh, and that's just, you know, just in Philadelphia, but this is, you know, this trend is, is global. And like you said, it's really being, I think, uh, you know, the millennials and Gen Zs are, um, you know, I think they have found it to be their kind of entree into gardening. Like if you had, if you only have an apartment and you don't have any appreciable amount of land or no land, this is a way that you can, you can garden, you know, in an indoor space, but garden, uh, uh, significantly, um, about a month ago, uh, we had we had a local conference and we had a, a summer rain oaks lecture. And she, you know, she, she be- has become a, a kind of a phenom on um, social media because of originally because of the house plants she grew in in Brooklyn. I think that that YouTube site now has like you know half a million followers for her house plant site. And if you if you look at some of the early early videos of of her and her, her place in Brooklyn, you know I think she had like five hundred you know house plants in this little apartment. And we have people who exhibit at the flower show. We had this woman that gave a lecture last week on how to enter a plant in the in the flower show, and I think she said she has 
800 square feet and has 400 house plants. So, I mean, oh, I have word. maybe 15. She has 400 uh, and she has less space than I do. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can either have one and be perfectly content or you can fill your enti- entire apartment with them. Yeah. I mean, I, there's something about houseplants to me that seems so much more high maintenance. Like I have two, my kids are too little for me to take. I have one <laughs> houseplant, one, and I love her and she's lovely, but I have my friends water her more than I do. And I'm keeping children alive. The houseplants are <laughs> divas to me. They're divas. I can't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of them are, you know, my mom <clears throat> grows a uh, mother-in-law's tongue, Sansevieria, and that requires <clears throat> almost zero, uh, attention occasionally uh she waters it and my you know my mom's a good uh interesting example where she you know during most of her life she had you know real active outdoor gardens but as she's gotten older she can't really garden outdoors so now she still enjoys gardening and she has quite a you know she probably has 50 house plants that she tends to uh Mm -hmm. regularly and another the inter- really interesting thing about the houseplant movement is the houseplants that are really popular today are mostly the same houseplants that were popular 50 years ago. So like mm. jade plant, spider plant, uh, fiddle leaf fig, mother lost tongue, uh, string of pearls, mm-hmm. um, pothos. Uh, what's called the corn plant, spathophyllum, almost every popular house plant. I mean, there's now kind of variants like uh, mm. cultivars, uh, but a, a lot of the old-fashioned ones are the ones that are, you know, have, are part of this incredible house plant renaissance. Yeah, that's so interesting, and I do think that um, I don't know what it's. It's like, it's almost like fashion, like things just keep coming back around. Um, yeah. And, and and I think, I think that's a good point. Like, I think now it is like fashion in that I think people who had houseplants before it was, they liked them and had them. I think now houseplants are really part of people's interior decor. Like there's mm-hmm. a, you know, you see a, a lot of. Like if you see how houseplants are promoted, it's really kind of part of a, an aesthetic or a complement to a type of uh, decor. Uh, I know the Proven Winners, which is probably one of the biggest plant plant brands in the world, has a whole new line of um, uh, houseplants called Leaf Joy. And mm-hmm. each, there's four, if you look at their website, there's four different, you know, there's like the, you know, uber modern. And then there's another one that's a little bit more kitschy and whatever one you pick, there's kind of, uh, the, the non houseplant decor. And then there's all the suggested houseplants that go with that type of decor. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's pretty, pretty interesting how, uh, how it's been kind of adopted in, into, uh, home decor and design. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. And I think I, I actually, I enjoy the content when it's like matching the vibe of the plant with like the right. decor style of your home. I think it's interesting. Um, yeah. 
for sure. Well, I guess like the the opposite of someone who's keeping 500 houseplants in their apartment would be someone who takes us into trend four, which is achieving ecological certification and using your your space to get sort of recognized um, in some capacity. And I've seen that locally where people have, you know, nationally recognized like pollinator gardens yep. and um, like wildlife habitat certifications, monarch watchway stations are really popular down here. Yep. Um, but I hadn't heard about some of the things I know you guys have talked about, which is like the homegrown national park, for example. Yeah. Yeah. The homegrown national park in, in particular is, so there's a famous entomologist, Doug Tallamy from the University of Delaware. And he started this homegrown national park. And the idea is that if you, if you kind of go through the simple certification and make your uh, home, you know, part of this, this uh, consortium, the idea is that, you know, state by state, you know, it's, it's based on kind of acreage. So you put, I put in the third acre and you know, my neighbors do the same and that's done 50 fold. Then all of a sudden there's, you know, multiple acres in Pennsylvania. And then that kind of gets, um, you know, uh, added to with all the states across the United States. So it's, uh, I, I think it's essentially a movement and a certification for people to really see their their backyard is is part of a greater uh, ha- habitat. Uh, we also uh, in S- the town I live in, Swarthmore, we have a little nonprofit called the Swarthmore Horticultural Society, and we maintain thirteen little public gardens. And we just put in a pollinator garden, and we got um, uh, the Monarch Watch Way Station habitat registration. Um, and there's others like habitat certification through National Wildlife Federation and, and others. So I think it's just another way for people who are taking this kind of ecological approach to the gardens to be to be recognized for it. I think a lot of people do it to maybe inspire their neighbors to do it as well. Like they've already uh, kind of uh, adopted this type of approach to their home garden in that if they put up some sort of certification, people are walking the dog and seeing that, you know, that, that they're serious about this, that they might, uh, might, um, uh, consider it as well. I like that. I mean, and I think that does, I think that rings true. I think people do take notice and it at least piques their interest, you know, yep. To a larger, a larger degree and a larger capacity, which is always really interesting. And um, I think kind of having that, I don't know, I, I think it's a fun thing to strive for as well, because kind of like yeah. you said in the beginning, too, when you are really passionate about it's like having an outlet for that passion, you know, and really taking right. it and seriously. That, and a lot of these, like the Monarch Watch, you know, their hope is that you know, if, if one place does it, then a few more do it. And then all of a sudden, again, you can see these different Monarch way stations popping up regionally. And the more they are that then you actually start to create, you know, corridors for, for the Monarch butterflies. So, you know, the, the certification, uh, entity, I think has a bigger picture, bigger plan in mind that they want this Mm -hmm. to be, you know, kind of populated across the country, 
I think for the homeowner, it's more, um, you know, may- maybe partially recognition, but also kind of just general education. Yeah. Well, and that does parlay nicely into sort of the next trend, which is planting pollinator gardens in general. And I mean, something I always encourage like the kitchen gardener or the vegetable gardener to do is to think, I mean, always have to have pollinators, like plants that are drawing in the pollinators. Yeah. Super crucial. And so, um, but I do love the trend of people really focusing on pollinators um, and, and kind of where that's leading us. Yeah. So, I, I you know, this has been a, a trend for for many years, and I, I think it'll continue to, to be a trend. You know, people now, I'd say the mainstream, recognize what pollination is, what a pollinator it is. They might not know exactly what biodiversity means, but they've probably at least heard, heard the word. Um, so I think as people go to the garden center, they're looking for plants that are known to be good pollinator plants. And there's, you know, I, I think you could probably call almost anything a, a pollinator plant. You know, most plants do attract uh, pollinators. But there are some that are particularly good, like the mountain mints or the, uh, you know, a lot of the daisy relatives like uh, coneflower, Joe Pieweed, um, uh, Solidagos, and and, and uh, on an Liatris. Um, you know, many of those, and I'm sure in Southern California, you have lots of regional natives as well, which might not be any of the ones that I just mentioned. Um, and then the garden centers are really promoting them. So they may have a yeah. whole section on pollinator plants or, you know, there's a brand called American beauties, which is depending on where you live in the United States, it would be regionally appropriate plants. So if you have American beauties sold at your local garden center, it's going to be, you know, pollinators that are good for Southern California here. They would be pollinator plants that are good for you know, uh, Eastern Pennsylvania and, and so on. So I think, um, the garden centers and nurseries have developed some sophistication around this. And then homeowners, I think are going in and seeking it out. And probably at least in the Eastern United States, the number one pollinator plant that, uh, nurseries just sell out of completely is butterfly milkweed, Sclepius yeah. tuberosa, which is, uh, that iconic orange milkweed that is kind of an iconic plant for the monarch butter- butterfly. Yeah. There's you always know, um, a sellout of that at our local nurseries too. And But there's also always a ton of, you know, controversy around native versus tropical milkweed. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. That yeah. whole... We could t- talk for an hour just on, on that. <laughs> yes, and, and it continues to be a, a controversy. You know, it, it depends on who you talk to. We've decided Pennsylvania Horticultural Society to take it. We don't use it in our, in our summer landscapes a- anymore uh, just because it's, we don't, we don't know. You know, the, here on the East Coast, it's theorized if you have the tropical milkweed, Asclepius chrysamica, that a, that monarchs will stay feeding on it late into the season when they should be migrating to Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
So, you know, it's probably in general just better to plant the native milkweeds. And there's dozens of species of native milkweeds, not just um, the butterfly milkweed. Yeah, for sure. Oh my gosh, it's all so interesting. So, okay, we I'm going to actually just list the remaining okay. trends because we won't have time to dig into all of them. Everyone's going to have to go check out. You'll have to let us know the website for the yep. Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. But the rest of the trends are mitigating global climate change with the way that you plant, um, using substitutes for boxwoods because of boxwood blight, which yep. is a huge issue and I'm actually curious about my own boxwoods. And I just saw Monty Don, you know, the Monty Don ripping out tons of boxwoods because of boxwood blight, which is like a whole nother situation. And I I don't think it's quite as common in like the back that I'm aware of, like the home gardener having massive boxwood hedges regionally where we are. Um, but I, I mean, it is, it's a whole huge thing. Um, planting more grasses and sedges and then growing Hydrangea mania. Hydrangeas are a movement. And then, of course, enjoying a taste of the tropics and the tropical plants. We are like so close to a subtropical zone where I live and I'm 10B. So we can grow a ton of tropical plants like with so much ease, no greenhouse and it's fine. But um, yeah, Yeah. we we grow that. We grow them for summer interest because they're not they're not quite they're not already here yet. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Um, but it's so interesting, all of these, like you said, just all of these trends. And I love that you guys have taken a strong stance on sort of promoting how people can be a part of what's trending, better understand the trends, and also choose plants for your climate that are well-suited and on trend, essentially, for people that are kind of like, they find themselves falling in alignment with the trends, but then what? You guys actually provide a ton of information on, well, these are the plants you could focus on and this is what does well here. And I think that's always really wise as a gardener is to keep things hyper-local. Um, yep. All of these trends can play a part in your life. Um, and whatever you see on Pinterest or Instagram, there's almost always a solution for your hardiness zone and your climate that is well-suited. That, yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, one of the things we do at the Horticultural Society is because a lot of our, our gardens are in a very urban environment is try to plant things that are that are durable and resilient and urban, urban tough, but right. also have a lot, you know, that are beautiful and have ecological functions as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so important. And I love I love that. So where can everybody find you guys to read up more on these trends? Yeah, so we're at uh, phsonline.org. If you are ever in the Philadelphia area, we do maintain 20 public gardens and landscapes. And then what many people know us for is the Philadelphia Flower Show, which has been running almost every year since... uh, 1829. It's held in the Pennsylvania Convention Center right at the beginning of spring at uh, early March, so March 2nd through the 10th. And uh, in a typical year, we get as many as 250,000 visitors to the the flower show. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, there's this whole culture as well of kind of like you said, like um, of showing flowers, growing things, you know, to put them into competition. And I think that's equally as fascinating. 
I do believe I'm developing the urge to grow like a blue ribbon plant. Like I think I'm becoming that obsessed. I'm like, I want a zucchini that wins a blue ribbon. Put it in a box, get on a plane, bring it out and (laughs) put it, put it it in the show. Oh my gosh. I've got, yeah. I mean, we've got to, I've got to look at, look at what I've got going on. Okay. Wait, my final question I have to ask you, I almost forgot is your favorite gardening book. Ooh, favorite gardening book. I, I would have to say the one that I've used the most over the years is uh, M- Mike Durr's Manual of Woody Landscape Plants. It's kind of the the Bible of hardy trees and shrubs. It's really more mm. for people kind of east of the Mississippi River. But if you're looking for a great tree or shrub, and there's been many, many, many additions over the years, so it stays current now. It's mm. When I was in college at Joliet Junior College, there was a version that was like 100 pages. Now the version is 1,200 pages and there's a a color encyclopedic supplement as well. Uh, (laughs) uh, So yeah, I would would say that. I mean, I have my entire, you know, house is filled with gardening books, but uh, that's a a go-to for sure. I love it. I love it. I was thinking of that because I was going to say my favorite plant is the nasturtium. So I would want to grow a nasturtium, bring it in my box to, you know, yeah, up to Philly. Grow, you can grow them. They're a little harder here. I think they do better in a, a Mediterranean type climate like yours. For sure. For sure. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for chatting with me. You have so much knowledge and it's so fun to hear about what people are doing around the country to really lean into not only making a difference and an impact through horticulture, but how we can make it really approachable. And I think you guys do a really good job of that. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Awesome. Have a good day. Okay. You too. Take care. Bye. I hope this episode has been balm for the soul and inspiration for the heart. I would love if you left a review to let me know your thoughts or anything you're interested in learning. And I'm so grateful that you found this space. For more information on any techniques, recipes, or ideas mentioned, visit us at baileyvantassel.com slash podcast.